Okay. So, Quentin Tarantino, attachment and process. So, first I'm going to talk a little bit about Quentin Tarantino, because I think it's really important to set this up. If, and this is completely reasonable, given the age range, if you're only aware of Quentin Tarantino from, say, the last, like, five to seven years or something like that, so movies like Django Unchained, Inglorious Bastards, Kill Bill, Death Proof, then you have this vision of this person that makes basically 70s revenge movies on steroids, like hyper-stylized, super bizarre performances, um, unbelievable amounts of like brutality and violence, and hilarious at the same time. Um, and, uh, and he has like a very kind of specific lane that he's like been riding in for a while. But if you like are me and you're pushing 40, so you've been seeing Quentin Tarantino movies since you were like 17 or 18, there's, you instead have this vision of this dude that comes along every three to five years and basically decimates the current language of film. So it comes in, it makes a movie. It completely changes everything that's happening. So like uh, I can remember the night I saw Reservoir Dogs. I think I was 18. My brother brought it home on video. We're watching this movie. We know nothing about it. And it's immediately amazing. It's like unlike anything we've ever seen. The characters are all these like scumbags that remind us of our drug addict dad, which is kind of great. Um, the dialogue is fantastic. It's unbelievably violent. You know, half the movie is Tim Roth rasping with a hole in his stomach. And, um, and I hate to do this, but it's kind of important. Spoiler alert, everybody dies. So I'm watching this movie and it ends and I'm like, holy shit, that's the best movie I've ever seen. I want all movies to be like this. So I then make my friend Brad watch it the next night. He gets to the end. He is like, I was like, that movie's amazing, right? He's like, that movie sucked. Everyone died. And I was like, I know, it's fucking great. <laughs> so that movie comes out. From 1992 to 1998, every other movie that comes out is a Reservoir Dogs ripoff. This kind of like small-time criminals, they swear a lot, they don't really do anything, they fail at their criminal enterprises. Um, they're basically like these kind of scuzz movies. That happens. Quentin Tarantino writes True Romance, which is like also amazing. Similar movie, but it's directed by somebody else. But you can tell it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. And then he makes Pulp Fiction. And Pulp Fiction comes out, and again, it's like, holy crap, what was that? That's unlike anything I've ever seen. It's super artificial and uh, stylized. It's cut really strangely. It takes a bunch of actors that nobody has cared about and somehow turned them into the greatest actors on the planet. Like, you know, nobody cared about John Travolta in 1995 or whenever that movie came out. And, um, and again, like, unbelievably violent but interesting and hilarious. You know, people's heads get blown off and you laugh. You don't laugh because you're cynical. You laugh because he sets up a situation where the only appropriate thing is to laugh. So that comes out. And then what else does he do? He does, like, one more sort of gangster movie, which is the first half of From Dust Till Dawn, the, the vampire movie that he does with Robert Rodriguez. So this is like a little cycle of like interesting movies. And then all of a sudden, he kind of quasi-disappears in the Quentin Tarantino way, and he comes back and he does Jackie Brown. Not stylized, funny, but not stylized. Super sort of realistic. The dialogue is funny, but it's based off the Elmore Leonard script. And at that point, Quentin Tarantino says that his next two movies are going to be Elmore Leonard adaptations. Like, he's not writing them, he's just adapting them for the screen. And you're like, whoa, that's weird. And it's, again, an amazing movie, and it makes you forget 
what he had done in the three or four movies prior to that. And then again, Quentin Tarantino disappears off the place of the earth and comes back and it's Kill Bill. And Kill Bill's totally out of left field. It's unbelievably stylized. The original movie is supposed to be four hours long. Uh, every single chunk of the movie has different cinematography. There's all these layered references to other directors, other periods of time, and he completely reinvents violence. Because at this point, kung fu movies have been big, and kung fu movies are tedious, right? Somehow people fight for 30 minutes, they punch each other, and then finally one of them punches the other one, and something happens. The whole time they're just like kind of slapping each other and nothing happens, and then spontaneously someone gets hurt. He makes a kung fu movie where everything looks like it hurts, right? People get thrown through glass tables and you feel it like up your back. It's horrible. And then he does, what do we have next? Death Proof, 70s revenge movie, kind of the same. And then Inglorious Bastards, 70s revenge movie, basically. And what are we left, left with last? Uh, Django Unchained, same sort of deal. Now, the reason I am talking about the sort of filmography of Quentin Tarantino is that one, it dramatically changes every so often and it kind of hangs out in a certain space for a while. So again, if you only had recent experience with him, uh, it would be very much like, oh, this is this dude that does this weird 70s thing. If you stopped watching his movies after, say, 1999, you'd be like, oh, he's that guy that does those kind of gritty crime movies. So they like they keep changing. But what's interesting is that every time they change, he has already said about like what he was going to do, and then he doesn't do the thing he said he was going to do. So, and this is how we're going to get into process and attachment. Uh, if you watch, like, if you go home right now and you watch Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, and Pulp Fiction, and you're paying super close attention you will see that there are all these names that are bouncing around from movie to movie. So um, a good example is in Reservoir Dogs, they're staking out the jewelry place. Harvey Keitel is talking about Alabama. Alabama is Patricia Arquette's character in True Romance. Uh, they talk about Marcellus Wallace, the Ving Rhames -like crime boss in Pulp Fiction, years before in Reservoir Dogs. Uh, the psycho Michael Madsen character in Reservoir Dogs, his last name is Vega. I, I can't remember what his first name is, but his brother is the John Travolta character in Pulp Fiction, so they're the Vega brothers. So at the time he's making these movies, they all live in the same little universe. He's mapping out this world and sending all these little threads through them. So that's like kind of interesting as trivia, right? Except that at that time, Quentin Tarantino kept talking about in interviews this giant list of movies he was going to make. So there was going to be the Alabama movie about Patricia Arquette's character as like an outlaw criminal. There was the Vega Brothers movie that was going to be a prequel to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. I think there was going to be a movie about um, Mr. Pink, the Steve Buscemi character. It's like the greatest character in history. So you're like, you care, like, like, holy shit, he's going to make all these movies. This is sick. Um, and then there's other little bits of trivia that like Pam Greer was supposed to play the Uma Thurman character in Pulp Fiction, which would have been a disaster. Uh, and that he was supposed to make a movie with Chow Yun-Fat and all this stuff. And the thing is, he talks about this stuff. They're not like rumors. He's like, in an interview, oh yeah, I'm doing the Vega Brothers movie next. And then that doesn't happen. And then he does Jackie Brown and says, oh yeah, I'm doing two uh, Elmore Leonard things next. And then he does Kill Bill. And like when he was doing Kill Bill, he kept saying that like he was doing piles of movies about that universe. Like there were going to be all these movies with The Bride, and there was going to be a sequel with uh, Daryl Hannah with no eyes or whatever. And uh, and none of those things happened. So the question could be like, oh, is Quentin Tarantino unbelievably flaky? 
Probably not, right? Because he's super busy. He makes all of these movies and he keeps going on. What Quentin Tarantino does, and this is the point, is that at some point, at some point in the process, he has an attachment to an idea. It'd be interesting to do a Vega Brothers movie. Those are cool characters. They're quite different. One's a psychopath, one's kind of calm. It would be cool to do this sequel to Kill Bill where um, the Daryl Hannah with no eyes, because I can't remember her character's name, is on the hunt for the bride again, right? And then he doesn't do it because like, through some mechanism, he decides like, ah, it's, just, it's not working out. Maybe it's that a new, better idea shows up, like Inglorious Bastards. Maybe it's that um, he starts writing it and it's just like, ah, eh, this is whack. So he stops and he moves on to the next thing. But what he doesn't do, which is what a lot of people do, they have an idea. So let's say his idea, I'm gonna do Kill Bill 3. Daryl Hannah's gonna run around with no eyes, hunting the bride, right? I don't know how she's gonna do that, she's gonna do it. He's writing it, but it's not working. It sucks, it doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, what, what could be other things that could suck about it? Daryl Hannah doesn't wanna do it. Uma Thurman doesn't wanna do it. Who knows like, what could happen, but there's all these things that could sort of open up to where you're writing a shitty movie. Instead of fighting it through to the bitter end and like fighting with the process, he just goes, that's fine, I have other ideas and he moves on to the other ideas. He doesn't um, stop altogether and attempt to solve the problem of Kill Bill 3, right? Which is what a lot of people do. Like a lot of novelists do this. They have some big breakout novel. They start writing the next one and all of a sudden 10, oh, Dr. Dre's Retox record. Is everyone familiar with this record? He's been working on this record for, what is it, 2015? In the neighborhood of 14 years, he's been working on a record. The like, rumors are that there have been 300 songs recorded for it, with beats by everyone. Like There's Dre beats, there's Scott Storch beats before he had a coke habit, there's Kanye beats. Um, Game is on it, 50 Cent is on it, Eminem is on it. Every rapper in the last 15 years is on this record that is never gonna see the light of day because Dr. Dre is sitting there trying to make the next Dr. Dre record instead of just making a record and putting it out. And then, or instead of going, you know what, this isn't working, let's do something different, because I obviously can't finish a record. It's like, what are the odds that Dr. Dre makes 300 songs and 12 of them aren't worth putting out? Like, we could all make 300 songs and 12 of them are probably worth putting out. And we're not Dr. Dre, like we're not like a musical genius. So he's sitting there, he's just like plugging away at this thing for whatever reason it's not working. This is where we get to attachment. So in Buddhism, the idea of attachment is this. You're ultimately unhappy at any given time because you want things to be different in some way. So um, what's a good example? I would be slightly happier right now if this was a Starbucks coffee. Um, I have like an attachment to a Starbucks coffee. I still today, even though I knew that I couldn't possibly get here on time, I thought, should I go to Starbucks? My attachment to the Starbucks coffee was so strong that I was almost willing to be late to class. But luckily I didn't do that. So I have this attachment to Starbucks coffee. Um, if you have an addiction, you have an unbelievably strong attachment, right? If you have an addiction to heroin, holy shit, do you have some attachment. You can't function at all unless you get your hands on your heroin. Um, even worse, 
you can make yourself more unhappy if the reason, uh, if your heroin addiction made you abandon something else awesome. So let's say you were going to medical school. Your whole life you want to be a doctor. And if for some reason someone will convince you it would be such a good idea to try heroin right now. <laughs> You've dropped out of medical school. Now you have like these two problems. You have your attachment to heroin, which is very frustrating, and you have your attachment to the fact that you were supposed to be a doctor. And now you're a heroin junkie. And you cannot stop yourself from doing heroin. So all of a sudden, like, your life is doubly disappointing, because at least if you wanted to be a heroin junkie, that would be awesome, right? Or like if you were looking for a reason to drop out of medical school, ah, if I did heroin, I wouldn't have to go to medical school. And only my parents would have to deal with that, because it was their attachment to medical school, it was the whole reason I went there. So attachment is like, you have this end result in mind, and uh, it's like, here's where I want to be. Here's where I am. And there is a thing in the way, and I can't get here. And every time, the more I can't get here, the more frustrated I am. Um, and like, if you think about it on a really basic level, this is like the fundamental human problem. Like, this applies to anything, right? Like, bitter adults who like have some dream that they can't get their hands on, so like they take it out on their family, right? Like. Um, what else? People who just treat other people like shit because they have like some attachment towards like, how come you're not the person I want you to be? Like, if you are, if you have parents who've been divorced, their divorce is basically like the result of attachment. They wanted to basically be married to different people. Like, I wish that you were someone else and you're not someone else. And God, it sucks that I'm married to someone that I kind of wish was someone else, but I kind of like you the way you are, but man, I wish you were someone else. And like, eventually that has the gift. That's like the basic tension of everything. Now, what does this have to do with like creative process? It works like this. Gwen Tarantino is over here in 1995, and he wants to make the Vega Brothers. And he's like, let's see, in two years, I'm gonna make, well, let's give it, we'll be more Quentin Tarantino-ish. In 1997, or eight, let's say, 98, this movie is supposed to be done. So he's got, if he has a ton of attachment, every time this screenplay doesn't work, like what happens? Frustration, right? And like, has anyone ever tried to work when you're super frustrated? Do you do awesome work when you're super frustrated? I don't. I might do work when I'm stressed about a deadline that forces that adrenaline burst, but if I'm frustrated, it is doom for me. I can't work frustrated. I can be stressed, but if I'm frustrated by the thing in front of me, it's a problem. So let's like all the problems that can come up. John Travolta is all of a sudden rich again and doesn't want to do the movie. Boom. That could be a problem. He's busy going back to making shitty movies. Um, the screenplay just doesn't make any sense. I don't know, what's our symbol for no sense? Here, we'll do the sense sign with not something to Um He feels like he's just repeating Reservoir Dogs again. Like, I'm just writing more dialogue about like um, Madonna lyrics. Like, do I really want to do this? So there's all these things that could come up, totally normal sort of creative problems, and there's sort of two things that can happen. You can either problem solve those, like maybe they're reasonable. You know what? John Travolta sucks anyway. Fuck that guy. I'm gonna go get Bruce Willis. Um, maybe I could eventually make this movie make sense. 
Maybe it's fine if I make Reservoir Dogs 2, or maybe I make a radically different movie. But if it feels like Reservoir Dogs 2, maybe that's kind of a problem. So, my basic point being, any one of these might be a good reason to say, you know what, Vega Brothers isn't working, call up the movie studio, hey, that's not happening. I will make you rich some other way, maybe. Or, I suppose the other one, and this is a really big one, is that this movie, he wants it to make so much money. God, if it could just make millions and millions and billions of dollars. And it's clear that the movie that he's writing, that he's not writing like a billion dollar movie. Like maybe he's writing a movie, he's like, it'll cost five million to make, if it makes 10 million, I'll be stoked. So, as this all builds up, it gets more and more frustrating. And maybe it gets pushed out a year, and then it gets pushed out two years and three years. And at this point, there's a thing economists call a sunk cost. So the sunk cost is money you put into something, and they tell you ignore sunk costs. Basically, never say, but I've already done so much work on this. The economist says, bounce. Doesn't matter how much you've invested, if it's not going to work out, bounce. If so what you've been working on the screenplay for two years? Screenplay sucks. Bounce. Yes. All of this is frustrating. Now, I don't know what Quentin Tarantino's been doing these last 20 years in terms of his actual process. All I know is this movie doesn't exist, but it, at one point it was important enough for him to be talking about it in the press. So he stopped. Something in here happened. Maybe it's just he sat and thought about it and was like, man, that's a dumb idea. Who gives a shit about that? The, the characters, I killed them, we're done. So he moves on to the next thing. He like, moves on to a newer, fresher idea. He doesn't have attachment to these outcomes. And yet, we know he has these sort of plans because every few years he makes a movie, and every few years he gives interviews, and he explains what the next movie is going to be, and the next movie never shows up. There is never the Kill Bill sequel, there's never the Pulp Fiction prequel, there's, I'm sure at some point he's going to start talking about like the next quasi-70s revenge movie he's going to do, and it's not going to happen. Instead, something else is going to happen because Tarantino understands that like, and I, a thing in the future is not worth like being creatively frustrated right now. So, attachment, basically the, the deal I'm trying to make is like, attachment causes you to do dumb shit between here and here. Because instead of following the process and seeing where it leads you, and maybe it leads you to a whole new movie, because the one you're writing sucks, Attachment makes you continuously beat yourself up against these walls. The reason I think that this is a problem is, let's say you make it through all of these hurdles. I very, I don't feel too good about you having made something amazing at that point. There's hurdles that suck, you know, like if you're inventing the iPhone and you find out the glass is getting scratched in your pocket, that's a hurdle that seems reasonable. Invent glass that doesn't get scratched in your pocket. Seems like reasonable. But if the hurdle becomes that no one working on the team designing the iPhone likes iPhones, maybe that means the iPhone is a completely unnecessary invention. And the worst thing that you could do was continue pouring millions of dollars into making iPhones, right? Wouldn't that seem like a bad idea if the people making iPhones were like, God, this thing sucks. Like, that's not what you want, right? You want them to be like, holy shit, this thing is amazing. We should do this. Like, There's a good story about the iPhone, which is that they were working on the iPad before the iPhone, and when Steve Jobs saw the touch screen, he said, stop working on this thing and work on the phone. 
So, like, perfect example. The attachment was the iPad. But along the process, an awesome thing popped up, and it was like, basically, screw the iPad, let's make an iPhone instead. Um, I'm trying to think of, I have another point here. So, the basic gist I'm trying to get at is, have a goal in mind when you start something, but then abandon it when it's clear that it, either a new or better thing has shown up, that it doesn't make sense, or that you don't enjoy working on it anymore. Because uh, one of the things that happens is like, let's say he makes the Vega Brothers movie and it tanks. And there were all these cues that it was gonna tank along the way. John Travolta sucks now. The plot makes no sense. It's basically a watered down reservoir dogs. All of these things are like cues like, hmm, none of that bodes well for this being this amazing movie. So the movie comes out and it's one of these like amazing stories where it makes $400,000 and it costs 10 million to make or something. Comes out and it tanks. Do you think if the movie tanked, that he'd be like, oh, mediocre movie for no money. See, the great thing about money is it's like a bribe. If you do mediocre work and you get paid lots of money for it, you're able to like repress that you're doing bad, mediocre work. It's really easy. Um, but if you do bad, mediocre work and it backfires, and all you've done is make yourself broke and ruin your reputation, uh, now you have this new problem which is you have to admit that you were doing the stupid work and you knew the whole time that it was a bad idea and that it was stupid and that the writing was on the wall, but you were trying to be greedy and so stuck on your attachment that you pushed, you decided, not nah, whatever, I'm just gonna go for it. Like, can you imagine, um, has anyone seen Waterworld? <laughs> yeah, see Waterworld. Waterworld is like the best, worst movie I ever made. They spent, um, how much money did they spend on it? $150 million, I believe, on the production and the marketing, and it made $40 million globally. It's terrible. It's one of those movies where like, the, the star of the movie starts writing it, so Kevin Costner is writing the movie. It's already a star in Kevin Costner, so it's problematic. Um, so, completely, basically, like, shitty, ridiculous movie. And, uh, you imagine, imagine how depressing it is. You're making terrible decisions day in and day out. You're firing directors on the set and replacing them with other people that you can boss around. And then you lose all the studio's money. How? Like, do you think that at some point you look back on it and you're like, well, that was all worth it. Like, I'm glad I did that. Yes. What is Waterworld about? Uh, Waterworld is like Mad Max but in the water. So, that is like a, a, the basic sort of problem with attachment. So. One thing I would think about, and, and the real point, is the idea of like a creative block and creative process. Um, nine times out of ten, when someone has something that resembles creative block, it's because there's an attachment to an outcome. Like, if you're, like is anyone write at all? You must, because some of you guys write comics, right? And animations and shit? All right. So there are moments where you can't think of what to write. Right? Is that correct? Now, I'm not sitting here writing, but let's see. So I have no stories in mind, but let's see. I am going to, if I can spell going, write right now because my marker sucks. Now, because I feel like it. 
if I had to, I could write like that indefinitely. At some point, I promise you, an idea is going to pop out of my head because my brain is going to be like, why are you writing this boring thing about absolutely nothing? Something is going to pop into my head. So like, the problem with, uh, with like, when people get into writer's block is that instead of writing anything, they go, but no, 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 I'm trying to write a novel, or I'm trying to write a screenplay, or I'm trying to write the most important work of American fiction of the last 10 years, some bullshit idea over here, instead of realizing that where you're supposed to be is right here, and you're just supposed to write. Just write something and figure it out. Um, and what, if you're lucky, you might do a crazy left turn, and instead of making the Vega Brothers movie that no one wanted to see, you're gonna write Kill Bill, this epic movie that basically changes the course of film for a few years. And you're gonna make tons of money, it's gonna be awesome, and you couldn't have predicted that. So, oftentimes, the creative block is not real. It's entirely like an artificial thing that's based on not following the actual process in front of you. Does that make sense? Um, there's a thing I love from a, from pickup artists, actually. They call it being, don't be outcome dependent. They basically say, if you're trying to pick people up, and the whole time you're thinking about how you're gonna sleep with them, that you're never gonna be successful in picking anyone up because you're like a weird creep to be around. Um, so uh, I'm trying to, like a good example is, if I teach a class, and the whole time I'm like, I want these students to do the most amazing work I've ever seen in my life. When they do that work, I want to enter into, into every design award scheme possible. I want them to be globally famous. Once they're globally famous, I want them to come back to the school and ply me with gifts and drugs. With those gifts and drugs, I want to retire. What else would I do? I'm going to secretly carry on multiple affairs with all of those students. Uh, I'm going to start my own school. And then, and everyone will go there to be famous and to give me drugs and money. Is there like a reasonable chance I'm gonna come up with any good ideas about what they could do right here? Probably not, because like one, how could I ever predict the scenario that would lead to such a ridiculous outcome? But is that like any different than being the person that's like trying to write a movie and their only goal instead of writing a good movie is to write a movie that makes $180 million? Like, can any of you predict how to make $180 million? Hollywood can't even predict how to make $180 million, and they do this for a living. So, you make terrible decisions if all you're focused on is these outcomes, about like all the awesome stuff that's gonna happen to you if you do this, you know what I mean? If you write the best comic book, like, think about how many things are amazing that nobody gave a shit about during their lifetime. Like Van Gogh. Like, thank goodness, I mean, it sucks for him, right? It's suicide, I believe. But, um, but thank goodness, Van Gogh didn't not paint what he wanted to, to instead try to make like a, I don't even know what period Van Gogh was. What period is that? Uh, like 1800s? Like late 1800s? Early. 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 Interesting. Right. All right. Southern France. So he can't make that impressionist money because those guys are after him. All right. So. We wouldn't have his paintings if he was attached to outcomes. Because you don't make new things when you're attached to outcomes. You make safe, boring things. Um, what's another sort of good example? So, like in the design process, this is obviously the one I know a lot about. Whenever students are stuck 
on a project, it's always because they're telling me about this thing that they want to make, and they have a timeline of where they're supposed to be in the process, and they're further down it than they should be. So like a good example would be like, um, I want to design, here's like me, I should be at the beginning, but way down here, what should I design? Somebody throw something at me. Cat seat that works in the car. A what? Cat seat. Uh, okay, that, that, I want to go for it. That hurts my brain, but I like it. Okay, so we have this cat seat. Mobile cat seat. Alright, so, if I, I'm in this process, look, what are the steps that I need to do to do this? Research. Yeah, like I need to figure out what kind of seat keeps a cat in it, right? <laughs> Research, like, what do cats like? That could be the bulk of it, right? Because I know that cats like to hide into, like, in poster tubes and shit based on my, like, Tumblr usage. So, <laughs> so like, I have to do this research. And then, like, what are other things? I have to figure out, like, where I can get the, like, where's the factory? Um, how much might somebody be willing to pay for the cat seat? Um, do, even if I made it, does anyone want the cat seat? Like, if I'm telling people about it, and they're like, dude, I don't bring my cat anywhere. Like, don't, why would I want a cat seat, and I'm not going to bring my cats anywhere? Yeah, yeah, right, it's true. Does anyone want one? Um, and, but let's just say for the sake of argument that instead of doing that, I get into, I'm going to have a nice car for this example. I get into my BMW. And I start designing the cat seat. But I skip. I don't do this. I don't find out how much it could cost or how I could get it for cheaper. I don't ask anyone if they want to put cats in their BMW. I don't even want to put a cat in my BMW. I just see people with dog seats and I think, oh, there should be a cat seat for the car. I'd make a ton of money. But I haven't proved any of that. But instead what I do is I spend a ton of time making the most beautiful cat seat that is perfectly integrated for my BMW. It looks amazing in my BMW, right? It's like a, what, the, what material is it made out of? It's leather. With like a, um, some kind of uh, like a accents in suede. Oh my God, the thing is gorgeous. Makes me totally happy. And then I produce it and it tanks. Nobody gives a shit. And actually, there's worse things we find out. We find out that, um, that if a cat has an accident in the cat seat, it's permanently destroyed, and it leaks through onto your BMW, and your car smells like cat piss, which like, I can't imagine anything worse in the world. Okay? <coughs> now, there's another scenario that could happen here, too. So there's like a pre-existing notion. So like, instead of having creative block of failure, the other thing is I could be sitting there with my BMW, I have no real opinion on cat seats, but I try designing one anyway, but I haven't done any research. How big should it be? I don't know. Like, like dog seats are kind of comfy and big. Well, like how big should the cat seat be? What material should it be made out of? Every decision I'm making is based not in reality. And if I have like a critical brain on my shoulders, I won't be able to make any decisions, right? If I haven't done any research into what size seat the cat needs, how would I know how big or small to make it? So like, there's, the, there's a kind of two methods. 
There's the person that's an um, egomaniac that assumes they know everything, and they're like, I don't need to research it, I'm just gonna make a badass looking Cassie, put it in my BMW. And then there's the person that knows they need to know things, but they're so attached to designing the cat seat that they're not doing the basic research. And that's like the really common one. Um, so like in graphic design, the way that it works is somebody gets a project and they're, and they're like, oh sweet, I get to do a poster for a theater. And they, um, and they go and look at a bunch of theater posters. And instead of like actually doing some research into the theater, what's the performance? Um, when is it? What kind of performance is it? Is there anything the director is doing that is interesting or out of the ordinary or avant-garde? Is the actor or actresses in it famous? Like any number of things. Um, but instead, what they do is they go and look at other theater things. And then they're like, I want to make that. And then no matter how hard they try, like one, no one responds well to it because no one buys it. It's not like congruent in any way, shape, or form. They make this thing and they it doesn't click. And everyone asks them super obvious questions. What's the play about? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's a play. <coughs> okay, how do you expect a critique if you don't know what it's about? Like, okay, well, is the director doing anything interesting? Oh, I don't know. I just really want to make this poster. And they like run into this block. And it, the block can be that other people don't get it and won't let them make it, like clients or teachers or whoever. Or that they're so attached to this thing that they're trying to jam into another shape that it's not coming together. Now, um, if you're like in my graphic design class, then you sort of know that the answer to 90% of your questions is, it depends, maybe, could be, try it. Because like like you can't predict where the thing is going to go. And then also that I want you to start at the beginning. So, you got to do the theater poster. If you start at the beginning, you'll have all this information about the thing that you're making. Because like the beauty of graphic design, unlike everything else, well, comics maybe, and animation, um, is that you have content that you have to deal with. Might be more difficult with painting, but if you were a painter, I would be like, put some paint on a canvas and get started. Stop being attached to what the paint should be doing. So with graphic design, it's like, okay, you do some research. Somewhere in that research, you're gonna find a like, spark of an idea. If you don't find a spark of an idea, it, the answer is so simple. You haven't done enough research. There's potentially one other answer, which is you're a moron and you don't recognize a good idea when it's there. But in general, all it means is you haven't done enough research. It's always what it means. Um, so you have like this research phase, and then you have like the content gathering phase. So like a good example in um, ad agencies is they like, use like what's called warm ipsum copy. So they put fake words into things, and designers always get stuck on this, but they never just write real words. They just leave the fake words in. So you can imagine, like, if you wrote a novel of fake words, let's just say you tried to do that, would you have actually written a novel? Or would you just have, say, 150 to 400 pages of gibberish, and then later you'd be like, well, it's about a caper. Like, it's about a heist. It's about a bank heist. Oh, okay, what about it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've just kind of filled it in with, like, with Laura Mipsum copy for now. We'll figure out the details later. Like, obviously, you're not writing a book. But like what happens in ad agencies is like you'll have to design a sign. Right? So here's an actual example, and I had creative block on this. I was told to design a sign at Target that would like go in the camera area that would sell a specific camera. I'm like, okay, cool. One camera or two cameras? We don't know. Well, why don't, what can we find out? No, they just told us to, to, to do options for both one and two cameras. Okay, cool. 
Is it specific cameras or is each one a different brand? We don't know. Okay, and then eventually came down to, can you just put an uh, FPO logo in, like a fake logo, basically a box, and can you, do, can you just lower MIPS on the copy? And like, so I just want to make sure I understand this. You want me to make a sign with a white box, gibberish copy, that just says Lorem Ipsum, do this twice, you want to send this to camera companies and tell them to fill it in. So instead, I tried doing that. And of course I couldn't make any decisions because I don't know anything. Logos are all different sizes and shapes. How does the Canon logo work versus the Fuji, or I don't know if Fuji makes cameras, but whatever. Um, so like, how does that work? And then, how long are camera names? Some of them are super long and some are really short and easy. So, I'm struggling with this for days, this non-existent problem, because I don't have actual information. I can't do real research because I don't know what it is I'm designing. I'm literally like, they have me here, and I'm not even at research yet, because I literally have no idea what I'm doing. So, I instead put real logos in, and then just put a note off to the side that says like, your logo will go here. And then I put real camera names in, and real information about cameras. I would imagine to everyone in the room that that makes sense, right? That seemed like the way to do it, and then you send it to the camera company and you say, replace out this real information with your information. Put your camera name where that camera name is. Put three bullet points of information about your camera in that particular spot. And instead, the people that I work with come back and they were like, we can't show Fuji something with a Canon logo on it. Like, why? Do they not know Target sells more than one brand of camera? Is that like really a shocker to them? It's like, all, do they live in like a weird world where somehow they don't know there are other camera companies? Uh, well, no, but we can't do that. Okay, well, what if we switched out one and we made one specifically for Fuji? Well, wouldn't that be kind of a pain in the ass and we'd have to do 10? All right, fine, let's do 10. Like, no, no, we can't do that. Target will get confused. Okay, and they're like, you can't show the name of an actual camera. Oh my God. So they wanted to say camera name. If you go and buy cameras, the names are super long. That's like what research tells you. So we end up all the way back at the beginning. White box, two blocks of gibberish copy. They send this out to all these camera companies. Every single one complains that they don't know what the hell to do with this thing that just has a bunch of gibberish copy on it. And then they come back and they go, could you just use like real camera names or real camera companies in there? So, I had created a block up until I went all the way to the beginning and did research and put real information in. They gave the camera companies creative block by again saying, look, we're right here, but that's not the truth. We're like all the way over here. And this kind of applies to anything. Like if you do some form of research, make lists, read, even talking, like this is a form of research. I thought I was talking for a half hour. It's been 50 minutes. I apologize. Uh, now I know how long this talk takes. If you do any form of research, ideas start popping up. Where they don't come from is uh, starting a painting but refusing to start it, right? You hang the canvas up and then you're like, man, I really want to make a uh, whatever, I don't know, what's a, what should we make? A Damien Hirst painting. Now, if you actually made a Damien Hirst painting, that would be like the wackest shit ever, right? Because there's already a Damien Hirst painting. There's already hundreds of them, potentially thousands of Damien Hirst paintings. 
Like, why would you make his painting? He's not going to make your painting, right? He's going to be like, I should start at the beginning. What should I do? Let's throw some dots on this canvas and see if that's interesting. And if it's not interesting, then let's trash it. And let's paint a giant butterfly. And if that sucks, let's trash that. And let's go saw a shark in half. And if that sucks, let's go saw a cow in half. You know, whatever the thing is. But you have to actually start at the beginning. Like, there's very few of us that can be able to envision a creative outcome that's brilliant and then just go and make it. I can't do it. I don't know what any of the shit that I start, how it finishes. I never have a clue. You just like start it and you see what it turns into. And I don't know anyone that works that way. I think it would be awesome if I knew someone that was like, oh, I got this sick idea. I'm going to saw a shark in half. It's going to be amazing. No, he didn't saw a shark in half. I'm going to put a shark in a tank of formaldehyde and it's going to look sick. And you'd be like, wow, that sounds crazy. It's like good marketing because it's memorable. But like, what if you threw it in formaldehyde and it just was like, ew. It looks like a dead fish in formaldehyde. This sucks, right? Like, so maybe Damien Hirsch is an exception, but I doubt it. You have to try the thing first. Um, and this is the point of like why every answer to any creative question should be, it depends, go and try it. Because you don't know the answer until you actually try the thing. We're not, I was gonna say we're not doing math, but like mathematicians have to try some shit first, right? They can't just be like, magically I have the answer to Fermat's theorem or whatever it is. So start at the beginning if you're stuck. And then just follow the process. If you're like, you're making a list, write one through ten. Start writing shit down on that list. And then like, if you're attached to awesome ideas, but you can't fill up a list with ten ideas, it's time for shitty ideas. The shitty ideas might be great. Think about how many things in the world suck that are actually fantastic. Waterworld seemed like it was going to be amazing, and it sucked. Reservoir Dogs is basically about a dude getting shot and then other people getting shot, and it's amazing. Like, that's not a very exciting plot, like, oh, a bunch of dudes get shot. Oh, okay. That sounds terrible. That sounds like real life. I don't want to see that movie. So, start at the beginning and just follow it through to the end. Does that make sense? Does anyone feel like they could contradict that? Like, they have a thing where, like, no, no, you're wrong about creative law. I have a very unique uh, form of creative law that you are completely dead wrong about. I'm convinced that this is universal. There's very few things that I think are universally true. This is, might be the only one. This and we're going to die. Those are the two <laughs> I believe in. And that, and that the world is fundamentally a monstrous place. Those are my three, okay? This is the only one that's good about anything. So, you just start at the beginning. Always start at the beginning. And like, have a goal but don't be so attached to it that you'll destroy the project in pursuit of the goal. Does that make sense? Like, um, and also remember, this is like so critical, if you fail in the shit that we're doing, it doesn't matter. It totally doesn't matter. Like, people who get fired from creative jobs, you don't get fired for failure. You get fired for being obnoxious. You get fired for sexually harassing people. You get fired for being a coke addict. You get, get, you get fired for um, throwing up in a client meeting because you're hungover. You get fired for being difficult and antisocial. You no one gets fired for bad work because most of the work in the world is bad, right? Most of it's terrible, but you can admit it. Just go outside the room here and look at things in the world. Turn the radio on. Turn on any radio. You're going to find that most things in the world suck, right? So that's not what gets you fired. You can make terrible things and become very rich and happy. But what gets you fired 
is a whole bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with creativity. And the reason I point that out is to say, if you fail, it really doesn't matter. Like, Kier's asleep right now. He's bored as shit with what I'm saying. Well, whatever, man. It's 55 minutes of his day. He's gonna enjoy himself in graphic design class. It's gonna be all good. Maybe graphic design class will be boring as shit because I'll talk like this the whole time too. But, like, there's no, there's no downside to me failing right now other than that maybe I wished a little bit of your time, right? Like, I don't care. I seriously don't give a shit. Like, oh, big deal. One class out of our entire existence didn't work. One project out of my entire existence sucks. And it's better, at least, like, I could be one of those people that every project sucks and I make tons of money. You know what I mean? I could be, like, Steven Spielberg or something. So I'm like, kind of happy with like, my like, ratio where like, I don't make any money doing the things I do. So I kind of like I'm only doing them because I enjoy them. But like again, it's like, boom, start at the beginning, follow it through. If it sucks while you're doing it, the payoff most likely won't be there, right? Like nobody ever, nobody ever like slogged through something that sucked most of the time and, and had it actually be worth it. Watch Waterworld and then read the Wikipedia page and just like nail that into your head. Like all these people knew that this sucked when they did it. They, they absolutely knew that they were making a $150 million mistake. And yet they just were like, nah, nah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. We don't have to write a good movie. We'll write the scenes the night before we film them. 